When you think about heaven, what comes to your mind? When you get a vision of of eternal life, what does that vision look like? There are a variety of theories about uh, what heaven, what Revelation describes as the new heaven and new earth are going to be like. And I have to tell you that probably over the course of the last 10, 12 years, my mindset about that has changed dramatically. I'm beginning to see, as I read the scriptures, I read people who, who spend a great deal of their life studying the scriptures, that when, when Jesus talks about restoring and returning to recreate the new heaven and the new earth, I think it will be a restoration of this earth in which we live. And it will be, and, and we will have some type of resurrected bodies, perhaps like the resurrected body that Jesus had. And we will, we will do work, and we will learn, and we will have relationships, because all of those things are gifts of God. But whatever your view of eternal life, of new heaven and new earth is, the one thing that we know for certain is that at the very center of that existence, at the very, at the very middle, at the very, at the very center point of all of that, is that Jesus Christ is the King. And Jesus Christ will reign. Handel said it so well in the Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. As Revelation tells us of his kingdom, there will be no end. He's the king. It's what Paul is describing for us in Philippians chapter 2. We typically focus a lot of attention on verses 6 to 8, and for good reason. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and appearing in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we give thanks to God for that. But we also need to see it in the context of the next three verses that say, therefore, God exalted him. God raised him to the highest place that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. He's the King. And it's the image that John paints for us in Revelation. In chapter 1, he, and, and in And in other parts of Revelation, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the king of all. And everything about our eternal existence with God will be centered in Jesus the king. Everything that we do will be because Jesus is the king. And what we will do in our eternal existence in heaven, the new heaven, new earth, will be to give our lives, our very essence, in allegiance to Jesus. All of life in eternity will be about allegiance to Jesus. 
serving Him, desiring Him. Whatever He wants, we want. Whatever He thinks, we think. Whatever is a priority to Him will be a priority to us. The very essence of heaven is that it is the place where God's will is done and God rules as the king. And that will be our existence. And all the things that we may do, it will be keep coming back to an allegiance to Jesus Christ, the king. And Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. He says, think on the realities of heaven. Set your mind on heavenly things instead of earthly things. And when I hear Paul saying that, I think Paul is saying to us, whatever we're going to do, however we're going to exist in heaven, should be the mindset of our lives on earth. I think sometimes we have this, as we talked last week, we have this disconnectedness between our lives in earth and our lives in heaven. And we say, well, you know, I'll kind of live my life now. And then when I get to that point of eternity, then everything will be focused on Jesus. But quite frankly, that's not what the gospel tells us. That's not what the scriptures say from the beginning to end. What the scriptures keep telling us is what we're going to do then, the mindset we have then, the priorities then is really the call of our mindset and our priorities now. And I think that really is the best definition of what it means to be a Christian. That we give allegiance to Jesus. We live our lives in allegiance to Jesus. Our whole existence is a desire, a yearning, a want to, to give ourselves an allegiance to Jesus. The question in our minds is, what does that look like? What does it mean to live our lives in allegiance to Jesus? It's probably easier for us to imagine that in eternity than it is in in earth. What does that look like? And as I pondered that and thought about that, I think probably the, the place that we need to be thinking about allegiance to Jesus in our lives are those things in our lives that block us, that keep us from living in allegiance to Jesus. I mean, that, that really is, is what the scriptures are often trying to help us see. They're painting this picture of who God is and the call of people to live for him. And most of the time, what the scriptures are trying to help us understand is what we do about those places where we're not doing what we want to do. Or we're not wanting to do what we should want to do. And as I've thought about that, I think that probably for most of us, that begins with all of the things that we say are mine. Our possessions, our wealth, our relationships, our gifts, our talents. Everything about our lives that we have a tendency to say, that's mine, is the very place where God is saying to us, oh, really? If you're going to live in allegiance to me, we need to talk about that.
we so often live our lives with this mindset, and we don't even, I'm not sure we always even realize we're doing it, but we so often live with the mindset of a closed fist about those things. We, we, are, we continually wrestle with this perspective of it's mine and I'm trying to hang on to it and protect it. You think for a moment about all the things that we do to protect what we have. Now, I'm not saying that's completely wrong. I'm just saying there is a mindset about that that is contrary to living in allegiance to Jesus. I think we wrestle with that because we're not really sure that God is who he says he is. We're not really sure that the things of God are more precious and more valuable than the things we hold in our hands. And so we keep closing our fists. And God keeps sending the Holy Spirit and experiences and people to pry open our fingers. To live in allegiance to Jesus is to live open-handed lives. It's to live with a mindset that says, God, everything that I might call mine is really yours. And as hard as the struggle may be, I want it to be yours. I know that's a struggle for us. I'm going to assume that we're not all that different, and I can tell you it's a struggle for me. Many times in my life and regularly, God is saying to me, am I going to have to come down there and pry open your pudgy little fingers? And he's telling, you know, you understand that. It's part of our struggle. It's part of the journey. And what he's calling us to is to want to let go, to want to open our hands. When we start talking about possessions, of course, you know, as we talked last week, often the first thing that comes to our mind is, okay, how much does God want? What's the rule? The Old Testament says 10%. The Old Testament says you bring a tithe. When It said to the Israelites, when you bring in your crops, I get the first fruits. I get the first 10%. Whatever you earn, whatever you make, whatever you get, that 10% is mine. And then you, people will say, that was good for them, but we're, we're New Testament people. We live in grace. We don't have to worry about that anymore. I could not agree more with that. Because as I read this week, something caught my attention. Someone said... When have you ever known grace to ask less of us? I thought that was an interesting thing to say because I'd not thought about it like that. And the truth of the matter is, when you get to the New Testament, you don't see much, hear much about 10% and a tithe. What you read is generosity. So Paul, and it's not a command. Paul writes to the, to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, this is not a command I'm giving you. I'm doing it because I am guessing and supposing and hoping you have enough love in your hearts that you want to do it. And you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that by his poverty he could make you rich. 
It's true. The New Testament really isn't all that interested in 10% because when you come to the New Testament, the full expression of what God's intended all along comes to the surface and we understand that God doesn't want 10%. He wants 100%. He wants all of it. And we can trust Him with all of it because we know who He is. It's the same way with with the struggle we have of self-interest. Not that those two things are necessarily completely separate. We struggle with self-interest. We spend so much of our lives, and again, I know this because I do it too. We spend so much of our lives trying to, to prove to people we're valuable and we're important and we have worth. That what we say is important, that what we do is important. And we, we spend so much time and energy focused on self-interest. And all the while, the gospel is calling us to self-sacrifice. The gospel is calling us to give ourselves away. Not just what we have, but everything about us. Again, it's what we see in Jesus. The cross is not punishment to Jesus. Jesus doesn't go to the cross kicking and screaming... He doesn't go to the cross even though he doesn't want to. The scriptures are so clear to tell us Jesus willingly gives himself to the cross. Because of his love, he gives himself for us. It's sacrifice. It's who Jesus is. Paul says he sacrifices himself for us. And the scriptures keep telling us that over and over again. When you read Isaiah's prophecy and he talks about the Messiah as much as anyone else, what is his primary description of the Messiah? The suffering servant. And the call on us is to be servants who willingly, in love, in active love, give ourselves away. In Revelation 5... John says uh, there was a discussion going on that I overheard about a seal that wasn't able to be opened by anyone. And he said, I began to lament because it needed to be opened. And the, the angel who's giving him this tour says to him, don't worry, there's one who can open the seal. The Lion of Judah can answer, open the seal. And John begins to get excited. He can't wait to see the Lion of Judah open the seal. And when he turns, he says, what I saw was not a roaring lion, but a lamb who'd been slain. And that's the image of Jesus the King. And that's the call on us. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, Paul says. In John 13, Jesus is meeting with his disciples that night of his arrest. And and on this night, he's trying to condense for them all the most vital and important things they need to know to be his disciples. And before he says much of anything, after they've eaten their meal, he takes a towel and a basin of water and he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet. And when he's done, he says to them, do you know what I've just done for you? I don't think they do. I don't think they have a clue. What he's done for them. In fact, I think they're appalled at what he's done for them. That's why Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. 
That's not right. Don't, don't wash my feet. And I think they're appalled, and I think Peter responds that way because rabbis don't wash people's feet. That's what servants do. That's what slaves do, not rabbis. And they're thinking about Jesus and people who can heal the sick and give sight to the blind. They don't, they don't wash people's feet. People who can raise the dead, they don't act like servants. People who can preach like Jesus and draw the kinds of crowds that Jesus does, they don't, they don't wash people's feet. They don't act like servants. They have servants to do that kind of thing. That's what it means to have arrived, that you don't have to do that anymore. You have people who do those kinds of things for you. But Jesus says to his disciples, now that I've washed your feet, you wash each other's feet. Because that is a significant part of being my disciple, of giving allegiance to me. See, here's the thing that I think we sometimes miss is that we think that our relationship of allegiance to Jesus is only between us and Jesus. But the scriptures keep telling us that you know you are living in allegiance to Jesus. You know that your mindset is in allegiance to Jesus, however imperfect we may do it. You know you're on that, in, on that thought process and, you're, and that's your desire by how you treat people. John writes in his first letter, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother or sister, you have to really evaluate whether you love God. We might paraphrase that to say, if you say you're living your life with the desire of allegiance to Jesus, and yet you keep treating each other like dirt, you have to wonder if you really are committed and desiring to live in allegiance to Jesus. I know that that sounds like the opposite of freedom. Allegiance sounds like the opposite of freedom, but it's not. It's not the opposite of freedom. Actually, allegiance to Jesus is the fullest expression of freedom. In John 8, Jesus is having a discussion with the religious leaders. And he finally comes to the place describing himself. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When we begin to know Jesus, when we begin to understand who Jesus is, and we begin to open our hearts to Jesus, and our desire is to live in allegiance to Jesus, it's not bondage, it's freedom. It's not freedom to live our lives with our arms around everything we have, trying to hold it and protect it and hoard it, And worry every day about someone taking it or us losing it. That's not freedom. That's bondage. It's not freedom. It's bondage. When we live our lives only only thinking about self-interest. Doing everything we can to prove to people how valuable and important we are. And to try to make ourselves look good. We wear ourselves out doing that. That's not freedom. That's bondage. It's freedom to let it go. And to just love. And to serve. And to give. And to live our lives in allegiance to Jesus with open hands about our relationships. 
and about everything a part of us. That's what freedom really is. A few weeks ago, I I was listening to a sermon by a highly respected leader in the evangelical church. It was probably about 20 years ago that this sermon was preached, and, and this person was probably in their 80s at that point, I would guess. And uh, they said, you know, there's advantages for getting old. You have a perspective about life that you, know, you don't have, you just can't have when you're young. And he said, you know, I, I've lived most of my life uh, in the 20th century. And I've lived most of my life connected to and involved in the evangelical church in the 20th century. He said, you know, sometimes there's a phrase that can summarize a whole movement. Just one phrase can really just kind of put in a nutshell the essence of a whole movement. And he said, if I had to choose a phrase that summarized the evangelical church in the 20th century, he said, I I think it would be these two words, receive Christ. Receive Christ. And he said, we, we talk about that, we preach that, we've spread that message far and wide that, that the church is here and the purpose of the church, of the evangelical church, is to convince people to receive Christ. And he said, I think people need to receive Christ. It is important for people to receive Christ. It's valuable. It's vital. But he said, there's something in the back of my mind that sees just a little bit of heresy in those two words if they're not understood in the right context. Because he said, to receive Christ is often something we view as a conclusion. We're trying to get people, we bring people a long ways and trying to get them to the point where they receive Christ. And it's sort of like, okay, now you can take a deep breath. You've done it. He says, as important as that is, he said, one day it struck me that when you read the Gospels, Jesus never says, receive me. But instead, he looks at Andrew and James and John and says to them, Follow me. Follow me. And he said the difference between those two phrases is significant. One of them we tend to see as a conclusion. The other, a life. And I think... The call of the gospel of living in allegiance to Jesus, the king, is a life of following Jesus. He leads us, we follow. He speaks to us, we listen. He calls us, we answer. And I think that might well be the clearest definition of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To follow him 
in allegiance. So the question for each of us is, what is it that's keeping us, blocking us from taking one more step of allegiance to Jesus? One more step of following Jesus and finding in that that it's not bondage, it's freedom. It's not death, it's life. It's what we were created to be in the grace of God. Holy Father, thank you for thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the call of the gospel to transform us and to make us new. Thank you for the promise of eternity you've given us. Father, give us grace to see what you see and to be who you've called us to be as followers of Jesus who desire to live in allegiance to him who is the king. Set us free the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.